Hello, welcome to Thoughts on Thoughts, a podcast where you, our listeners, can become part of a conversation with us. We are three therapists who are going to talk about the good, the hard, and all the in-betweens of life. Come join us. Howdy. Welcome to Thoughts on Thoughts. My co-host here wanted me to redo the intro that I had done where I said howdy. And you know what? I'm keeping it. Okay, (laughs) but the way you said it the second time was much more acceptable than the first time you said it. So you should all know that. It's a little abrasive. (laughs) You guys would have been like, oh my gosh, my headphones, I have to rip them out of my ears because KJ just yelled howdy at me. (laughs) Honestly, it was kind of magical, I thought, but (laughs) it's fine. Welcome, everybody. We are doing a Q&A episode today because we decided we're going to do those once a month-ish. Mm-hmm. And so we collected mm-hmm. some questions from you guys, and we are going to dive into those. Without further ado, drum roll, please. I'll stop. Okay. How do you find a therapist? Oh, great question. Great question. We did an entire episode on this. It's episode 15, so it's really early on. So it's in our early days, but it's a super good episode that basically says, talk to people, you know, um, get on, I was going to say WebMD. It's not WebMD. Get on psychology today and look for people in your area and you can see their picture and their bio. So you can kind of get a, a feel for them. Um, and then go through your insurance and figure out what kind of therapy you want. Like, you know, If you're looking for an EMDR therapist, for instance, you can kind of filter by that. Um, Talking to your primary care physician, things like that. Did I miss anything? Yeah, asking your friends too. Yeah. Sometimes ecclesiastical leaders will have therapists that they work with that they refer people to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. And I think that's it. But we really dive into all of these things on that episode, so... Mm -hmm. Go give that a listen. And if you still have a question after you listen to that, I don't even know what to do. No, I'm just kidding. We'll answer it next month in our next Q&A. Yeah, yeah, it's true. (laughs) But reach out because we can definitely answer it. Mm -hmm. But good job trying to find a therapist. It can be a little intimidating. So for sure listen to the episode. don't be afraid to to not work with someone. There's no obligation The best way to find a therapist is to try out a bunch of therapists until you find one you click with, truly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's annoying. It might be expensive, but that's 100%. Well, they should, typically therapists will all do at least Mm 15-minute consultations for free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love those. Yeah. Yes. So you can call them and talk to them for a little bit and get a feel, and that should be free every time. Yeah. If you are contacting them for the first time, feel free to request, like ask them for a consultation yeah. phone call, you know, instead of just making an appointment because I do free 50 minute phone consultations and it is the best thing. I feel like every, it just makes it a lot easier for clients once you've talked and once you've like gotten to know each other a little bit, it makes that first session even better because then 
they're really ready to jump in. They feel like they know you a little bit. So do that for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Our next question. How do you balance asking for help, trying not to be clingy, and feeling like a burden? I really think a good key to this is to assess what you're asking for help with and what you're receiving and who you're asking and things like that, right? Because I do think it is possible to sometimes be clingy and have like our attachment system flare up and really be needy and expect other people to meet needs that they don't need to meet that we could really be working on for ourselves. You know, Um, we talk about that a lot with anxious attachment, but I think you have to kind of look at it and be really kind of like honest with yourself both ways. Right. So don't be overly critical of I'm always asking for help and no one wants to help me. You know, let's not let depression rule the day. And then let's not also let like that anxious, like I can't do anything by myself. And so I need to always ask for help rule the day. Like you have to find a nice middle ground. And so I think you can look at your relationships and start to notice, like, what are you asking for help with? Is it something that like emotionally is really huge to carry? So a really good example, Taylor, if you don't mind, Taylor posted yesterday, about how she had a very emotional weekend and her husband was gone. And so she asked her sister to step in. That is not clingy. That is asking for a support person, right? Mm -hmm. If now Taylor said to her sister, I need to now call you and debrief for two hours every day for the next two years, that's clingy, right? Uh, Yeah. That's a lot. And so I think it's, it's really recognizing like, am I asking for help for something that's like, emotionally really difficult or physically really difficult for me to do. And then hopefully over time, I'm learning to do it better on my own. But, or am I kind of having people, what would you say, like catch me and like save me all the time? Am I using people to like, yeah, to rescue me and to not have to exert my own energy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're having a difficult time, like, making those distinctions for yourself are episode three that we did on emotional awareness is a great foundational step for all of this because it has a lot to do with recognizing your own emotional climate and recognizing the emotional climate of the people around you. So you recognize like how you are feeling, but also how you are making other people feel. So in that episode, we really dig into all of that and noticing those cues and those red flags. So starting with trying to be emotionally aware. So it's like how you are feeling, how you come off to other people. And that can really help you kind of get into what Jessica is talking about of like asking yourself those questions, noticing what you're requiring of people if you're having them rescue you all of the time. So it really does start internally. It's kind of figuring out what's going on with you in your own emotional climate. I think something else that you can do is you can kind of ask like an outsider, like third party person, what they think about the situation. So we are happy to be that unbiased person for you. If you need it, a therapist can always be an unbiased person. Um, Maybe like a friend, like be like, Hey, if my friend was doing this, what would you think of that kind of a thing? But ultimately you're going to have to dig deep and do some work to really feel like, Oh, is it just like that negative self-talk that's telling me I'm being clingy or is it I'm really relying on people to do things that I I want to learn how to do for myself. 
All right. So this question is tips on parenting without shaming and how to break the cycle of generations. So I'm guessing like the shame cycle has been going on for generations in this family. But I think what it all comes down to with not shaming your kids is how you talk to them. So it's the content and it's also the tone. So it's the words you say and how you say it. One example would be don't compare your child to another child. So like Johnny, Susie can tie her shoes and she's two years younger than you. Don't you wish you could tie your shoes like Susie? Mm-hmm. Dang that Susie. Freaking Susie. <laughs> Overachiever. I was Susie. I'm just kidding. You are I'm Susie. I'm always Susie. No. Oh. It was just I a good shame. moment for a joke I had to, you know. Oh. So, yeah, so that comparing one child to the other as a way of, like, trying to teach them doesn't teach them. It just makes them feel bad about themselves. So, and then tone of voice in that, you know, I mean, there's so much in tone, but you can tell when someone's, like, talking down to you and Mm -hmm. when they are, you know, actually being encouraging. Yeah. I think... When this is so generational, it just is kind of like in your nature and in your DNA to speak this way and use those tones and say shaming things because that's how you were raised and you just like, it takes a lot to step out of it and see it. But I really think that the way to break that cycle is to do a lot of redos as an adult. And so, you know, you say to your child, why don't you tie your shoes like Susie? Susie loves to be able to tie her shoes like a big girl. I bet you wish you could tie your shoes like Susie, right? And then maybe two minutes later, you realize, oh, that was shaming. Or maybe immediately you realize, oh, that was shaming. Or maybe right now you're listening to this episode and you're like, oh, that was shaming. And I think you take a second and you do a redo. And you say, you know what? I think it's okay that you go at your own pace while learning to tie your shoes. And I just really want to help you. And I was feeling frustrated earlier because I really want you to be able to do this by yourself, but we can do it as many times as you need to practice and blah, 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 blah. And so it's just redoing that over and over and over again. Another big thing is that generationally you will have your parents still shaming you while you're trying to not shame your kids. Um, And you kind of have to break that cycle as well. And I think really good, strong, clear boundaries of you're trying to make me feel bad about that, but I get to choose how to live my life or I get to choose how to parent my children or you don't get to speak to my child that way. This is what I want them to know, you know, and it's intervening and standing up for yourself and standing up for your kids And sometimes we can't stand up yet because we're maybe not emotionally strong enough and that's okay. And then I think you really have to just do some internal like reparenting. Like if your parent throws some shame onto you, it's really hard and you can't say anything in that moment because a lot of times those shame triggers are really hard to work through. Go Mm -hmm. home and then work through it with a friend, a spouse, you know, someone that is really trusted and who is really good at it. And then you can say, okay, I can let go of that shame that my mom was trying to put on me and I don't need to then go give it to my kids. Mm -hmm. 
Because that's often what happens with shame is that I've been shamed by my parents. And so I feel a lot of shame. So I'm going to push it onto my kids. It also sometimes is like, it works. My kid jumps into line when I do it, you know, and that's going to always be true. But it's the same, like three out of four times you want to be doing non-shameful parenting. Every once in a while, if you throw it in there, your child will be just fine, I promise. But (laughs) just use those reduce for all the times you mess up along the way. Mm Mm-hmm. And something that's really good that can combat shaming that I'm actually working on with my kids right now is like talking positively about them while they're in the room. You find a lot as a parent, like I don't know, for me as a mom, like my kids are around me all of the time and just like any other parent, I need time to like vent and da, da, da. So I find that most of the time I'll be talking to like my mom or my sister or my friend on the phone and they're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm all of a sudden wanting to vent about something that my kid just did or you're like, oh my gosh, but my kids are with me all of the time, you know? And so I'm trying to watch that behavior as well as like while they're in the room and I'm talking to somebody like praising my kids to somebody else so my kid can hear me so it's kind of like instead of like oh yeah like Boone threw a huge tantrum today like would not get in the minivan you know it's kind of like Boone had such a great day at school and he came right out and he jumped in the car and he got buckled so fast and he was such a good helper for the rest of the day like and so that he hears that and so I think that it can kind of combat and set a normal precedent in your home that like you speak positively about your children they hear you speaking positively about them so then they gain like a healthy self-concept in themselves and that's something that you can work on every day you know even if you're at home by yourself with your kids you can talk positively about your child to your other children and then one last thing about this is that shame is an interesting thing with parenting because shame is our own response we it's like what Eleanor Roosevelt said, right? No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And it's the same thing. Like no one can shame you without your consent. And so you might parent your child and sometimes that means critiquing what they're doing and they might internalize that as shame. But as long as you're making sure you are being really open with your tone, you're being very kind and loving in the directions that you're giving, you can rest assured that like you're okay. And then you can work on your child with not turning it into shame. I had a lot of clients who were teenagers who would come in and their thing was my mom has been shaming me. And that was like their new thing of like, my mom is shaming me. And as we dug into it, it was like, no, your mom was correcting that you actually cannot sneak out of your window at three in the morning and go meet up with people at the park and smoke weed. That's something that your mom doesn't want you to do as a teenager. That's not shaming. That's redirecting and teaching, you know? And so it's reminding yourself that like, I need to do my part to not shame, but I also do need to parent. And sometimes that might be interpreted as shame. So then I can work with my kid on reviewing those feelings, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like that Gottman concept that we talk about with relationships of like criticism versus contempt. It's kind of like a criticism, even though that still sounds pretty like aggressive. A criticism is like talking about something that somebody did, like Jessica just mentioned, like you cannot sneak out. It is not safe. Like that's not shame. It's kind of like you are so irresponsible. You are so, you know. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never amount to anything if you keep doing this. Like that is shame because it's attaching that action to the person's um, 
to their self-concept and who they are. So if you are attaching a behavior to a kid's concept and who they are innately as a human, then yes, that is shaming. So it is it is important to kind of make that distinction. But Susie doesn't sneak out. <laughs> Susie. Susie. <laughs> If you compare me to Susie one more time, <laughs> so help me. <laughs> okay, our next question. How to heal a romantic relationship after a big fight and loss of trust, but not necessarily cheating? So first of all, I just want to say the person that sent this, it's like this is such a big part of relationships, especially with trust. Like we are always trying to establish and keep trust. And sometimes we do things not always on purpose that damage that. So I think that the first thing that you have to do is separate yourself from the experience. And so it's kind of like if there's a big fight and maybe your partner talks to you in a way that it has been established is inappropriate. Like maybe something that really triggers you and you guys have talked about it before and they know not to talk to you like that and they do that. That's just kind of the example that I'm going to like run with right now so we can get more specific. Say that they do that and then you're stepping back and you're just like, oh my gosh, like who are you? Who are you? Where did this come from? We've been together for so long. I thought that we talked about this. You did this. This is a big thing in relationships. You did that because you knew it would hurt me. Like you knew not to do that and you did it anyways. And that hurts me and makes me feel like I cannot trust you. So the first thing that you have to do is separate that experience, like that fight from who you are as a person, right? It's kind of like a place that you really don't want to go in that is like, what did I do? What's going on? What's wrong with me in this relationship? Um, Because that if you can stop yourself from going there, sometimes you go there and that's okay. But I think taking a step back and being like, okay, like this relationship has been solid. This relationship has been secure maybe. And we've established these boundaries. This is a broken boundary. And I'm feeling very, very hurt for this broken boundary. And that's okay. Like I am allowed to feel this. So I'm going to separate myself from that experience. I'm going to recognize what's going on within me. After the big fight, take some space. Definitely need to take some space. Schedule a time to come back together when you are both feeling comfortable and level. And then once you come back together, you have to verbalize and process the experience. Talk about what happened. Talk about how it made you feel. Okay. And then after that, you create a plan to then initiate building trust again. The big thing about trust is it takes time. Somebody will say, I'm so sorry. I talked to you like that. Like I know that we discussed it. I know that it makes you triggered in this way. I don't know why I did that. I'm really, really sorry. That is a great start, but that does not mean that trust has then been reestablished. It's going to take time and action after that. So then what the hurt party in that position would say, for example, is like, I hear you and I'm so grateful that you recognize that and I recognize my part in this as well. But what I'm going to need to see from you at this point is A, B, and C. You know, I'm going to need to see you talking to me in an appropriate way. I'm going to need to see you taking time and space whenever you feel that you're escalated. As you do these things, I will recognize that you are trying in this relationship to consider me and my emotions and what's going on. And then over time, this trust will be built again. 
again, this is kind of a specific situation. So if this isn't exactly what you're talking about. I apologize, but all the principles are pretty much the same. Separate yourself from the experience. Recognize what's going on internally. Process the situation in a very calm environment and then create a specific plan for the future that that person will know how they can show you that you can trust them. And then you will be able to see their actions and then over time build that trust again. Okay, our last question is about managing a relationship with a narcissistic individual and how to heal from that relationship. This is hard. Very just hard. want to validate that. Like, um, if there are people listening that are dealing with that in their life, it is a tough thing, mm-hmm. and it can have just a lot of complexities to it depending on the nature of the relationship whether it's a spouse or a mother-in-law or a sibling or a friend or a boss so I think we can talk about it in general terms but some of the things that we say may be difficult just depending on what the relationship actually is so the hallmark of narcissism is basically an elevated sense of self, people who kind of feel like they can do no wrong. And often if you try to set boundaries with individuals who are narcissistic, they will push back on that because that wounds their concept of self and they don't want to feel that. They want to feel like they can do no wrong, right? And so you may be interacting with a person who really struggles with the boundaries you set. And that can be really tough. So when you're in a situation like that, at the very least, what you need to be doing is working on taking care of you, working on taking care of your own emotional climate, working on that self-care, working on continuing to foster the healthy relationships in your life so that you have those people to process with, to have a safe place with them when this other person is not safe for you. And then when interacting with this person, um, it is, you know, setting those boundaries in the way that you can. So taking care of yourself primarily, but then practicing setting healthy boundaries with this individual is going to be really important. So maybe you have like a parent who has a lot of narcissistic tendencies or maybe narcissistic personality disorder, you know, um, and you're really struggling with it because it's your parents, you don't want to cut them off, but you also need to get some boundaries in place. A good example would be maybe you have a baby, but they're making it all about them. Right. So it's like, okay, mom, this is not your child. This is my child. I get to choose what happens here, you know? And so I think a good way of setting boundaries is lovingly taking your parent aside and saying that, right? Mom, I appreciate X, Y, and Z that you're doing for me and my baby, but I really need you to give me space in X, Y, and Z. And maybe that's not posting things on social media about them. Maybe that's not telling your neighbor about your difficulties breastfeeding. I don't know what it is because a narcissistic person will take your experiences and then pretend like they're their own if they want to, you know? And so it's really just like setting those boundaries in a very loving way. And then when 
your mom pushes back and inevitably does not respond to them, then you start to limit ways that she could interfere, right? And so maybe that means you don't tell her what's going on in this part of your life. Maybe you give some space and some distance in certain things. And that's okay because you have to remember it feels like you're hurting and shutting that person with narcissism out, but you're really saying, I would love to have you in this room with me, but you must walk through the door that I'm going to open for you. And if you won't walk through the door, aka follow the boundary that I set, then I just can't have you in this room. They can choose. If they don't want to choose to respect your boundary, then you have no need to let them in and just hurt yourself, right? And so always remembering that. It's not so hard to respect someone's boundary. It might be difficult for them, in which case you guys can talk about it and really process and whatnot. But like to be like, well, I have to let them walk all over me because they're my mom. That's just so not true, right? Because it's either they're walking all over you or you're standing up and you can have a relationship as adults. Or maybe if they don't want to have a relationship unless they can walk all over you, well, what kind of a relationship is that really, you know? That was perfect. Thank you, Jessica. And I think something to really remember here is that healing from a relationship like this is going to ebb and flow. And I wish I could say that it was going to be like a one-stop shop, like you could do these things and then you're healed and you're good and you'll feel great forever. But that's not the case in relationships because things Mm -hmm. change. Someone may accept your boundary one day and then completely trash it the next. So Healing is going to be probably something that is ongoing, but hopefully some of these things can help navigate some of that so that there is some relief there. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I was just thinking about with narcissism is it is really trying to reframe the fact that it really is about them and not about you. Like one of the central defenses of a narcissist is to project like their fears and flaws of themselves onto other people almost continually because the moment that they stop, that's when they realize like, oh, I am not perfect. I have no self-love for myself. So what they do is they just continually push that onto other people and they point that out to other people and they shame people for those things, right? Because they have, they in their minds, they have to do that in order not to feel those things themselves. So if you can kind of recognize that in those interactions, like say somebody's like really coming at you hard and making themselves, you know, like elevating themselves and really putting you down. It's kind of like everything that they're putting onto you is something that they feel very insecure about themselves and they lack the skills to cope with that and figure that out. So it's kind of like, this isn't about me. Like, all this drama, all this stuff, it actually has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with them. So if that can give you a little bit of relief and just really fight the urge to kind of internalize all of those things because they really have nothing to do with you. All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Please share this if any of these questions uh, were helpful to you or you feel like they'd be helpful for someone else. And We'll catch you next month with another one of these. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us today. 
We want to create a community of inclusion where we can have conversations about topics that you need help with or have questions about. We want you to have a voice in this process, so please let us know what you want to hear about on future episodes. You can email us at thoughtspod at gmail.com, and if you search thoughtspod, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All original music is composed by Milan Bryich from Valley of the Bears, and our logos are by Rick Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Bluebirds. Bluebirds. Maybe you have a parent...